the OSS Cubed is back with over $14 million in guaranteed prizes. From September 24th to October 22nd, featuring $2 million Sunday tournaments on October 15th and October 22nd. And it's waiting for you at America's Card Room. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 147 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the adverts or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on OneOuter.com website and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at OneOuter.com and we will get them read out. Alex, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Barry? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I've just remembered there, as I said that, uh, we both saw the new It movie, the... Mm the Stephen King novel that's been turned into another movie and someone tweeted like something along the lines of oh, I hope you and Barry dissect this together or I can't remember his exact words but it was sort of like saying tearing it apart or something so um, let's just jump into that we've not talked about movies in a long time actually um, mm. what did you think of the new it movie? I I. I realize the reason that Stephen King is such a successful artist is he picks really universal themes. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, it felt to me like a Steven Spielberg movie if it were really bloody. It, it, the pack of kids going off to find the monster, and I really enjoyed that. And it was refreshing how the kids actually cussed because if uh, a clown that looked like that was coming to attack me, I don't think I'd say, gosh, diddly fiddlesticks. Yeah. <laughs> I, pro I probably would be saying some pretty bad words. And I, I love that book. I love that movie from start to finish. What do you think? I really liked it. Um, I, you hit on it there. I actually said something to my friend. Like it was like a cross between sort of stand by me, stranger things, and, you know, that sort of vibe. It, it was... <laughs> It was one of these 80s feel films. It was set in the 80s, obviously. And I think the original, well, the original sort of TV miniseries with Tim Curry, I think that was the 50s, wasn't it? It was like set in the 50s. Oh, um, uh, that's a good point. I'm not sure. Yeah, and this, this one was set in the 80s, obviously more, a, you know, a new generation. I really, really, really thought it was good for modern horror and a remake, because as soon as anything gets remade, or even reinvented, it's obviously going to be compared to the original. But uh -huh. the last time I watched the original, it, I think it was a few years ago, and I remember just thinking how dated it was. It was just, <laughs> it didn't really, I mean, obviously Tim Curry as Pennywise, it was still good, but a lot of the other, just the acting and the way it was filmed and shot, it just felt really... It didn't age well. It looked like a, a TV film straight to TV, you know, that sort of TV mm -hmm. movie. But, yeah, no, I did. I really, really liked it. Um, I don't think it's as good as everyone said. Like, it was, like, this amazing thing I'd watch again and again and want to watch back. But I'd probably watch it again, you know what I mean? Like, mm 
um, in the future. But yeah, I thought it was good for, as I say, any remake or anything like that is always... People love to slate it and say... Like, I went with a guy that's read the book five times or something like that. Like, my friend, my friend loves... Uh, Stephen King and, and specifically mm-hmm. it and he's always on about the, the book but I've never read the book and I just you know I, I'll watch the film for stuff like I don't read fiction <laughs> yeah I I read I read fiction I feel like I should read more of it but it does become very time consuming to read fiction some of those larger books are 10 20 hours yeah it's like seeing a tv series but it's one book Although obviously it's much more engrossing and enriching than watching Twenty Four, the the thing I liked about well, there were so many things I liked about that movie. The dialogue was very snappy. Uh, it just kept moving. Did you notice that the whole there's yeah. no dead dead time in that movie. There's I had to go to the bathroom eleven minutes into that movie, and. I never found a spot where I thought, okay, here's going to be the lull where they all decide that, nope, nope, nope. There was not one section during that movie where you felt, okay, I can catch my breath. It was just going the entire time, which I liked. And that universe, those universal themes are very interesting in that uh, I saw some speech over the weekend that pointed out there's only seven notes in music. The rainbow only has seven colors. What if everything is invented already and you just need to perfect it? What if you're looking for new discoveries and they're not going to be forthcoming? It it (laughs) focuses on, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, this doesn't really give much away. He feeds off of fear. He, if you fear him, it's going to be much more problematic than if you just face him. And that was the thing that I, I know a lot of people didn't like it because it wasn't standard horror. And I was thinking, I've seen enough horror in my life. I'm fine with one really bloody Harry Potter. That's, that's cool by me. And the universal theme of if you fear something, it becomes much more dangerous. I thought it was really interesting. You could apply that to your life afterward. If you get anxiety about, okay, well, I, before I came on to this podcast, I got a number of texts saying, hey, uh, trying to change your Facebook password. And I thought, well, this is this is pretty interesting because I wasn't trying to change my Facebook password. And while you couldn't get access to my finances or anything with uh, Facebook, you, you could potentially find some other way to make my life much less enjoyable. And it filled me with a ton of stress. And then I thought of that movie in a weird way, and I thought, am I afraid of some jackass trying to attack my Facebook? Because if I give this guy credit, that's when it becomes really scary. Is, yeah. uh, it, it is fearing something to the point where it cripples my life. Whereas if I say the statement, I am not afraid of some kid in Maryland trying to hack my Facebook because I said something mean about his favorite poker player in a training video, and he guessed 
what my email address is. Uh, If I say that statement, it sounds really obvious. And I know this is getting a little deep for it, but I feel like we overly complicate everything in life. Do you ever get that feeling, Barry? Yeah, I think it's... Well, that is what anxiety really is, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. the fear of stuff that's not happened yet and you're living it as if it has, rather than just, as you say, facing it. It's never as bad. There's a great quote that's like, uh, what we fear is never... It's always worse in our mind than it is in reality or something like... I'm paraphrasing some quote along Mm -hmm. those lines, but it's true. It's really true. It's like people worry about this and that and before you know it you know it comes and goes and then they're like wow that's what i was stressing about and worrying about and now it's over but Uh it is hard sometimes when you're really caught up in it and it's running away with you some people that do suffer real you know anxiety and stuff uh it can Uh it can it's a little bit harder than saying just just face your fear and fear you know they say the worst thing you can say to someone that's going through severe anxiety and panic is calm down because it instantly, oh, yeah. you know, it instantly just, <laughs> well, if I could calm down, I would, I would be, you know, and they just start going again. Um, mm-hmm. the be- it's like that thing, if you've ever had uh, that much adrenaline going through your body where your hands are shaking or your legs shaking or whatever, and you get really worried, like you can't stop your legs shaking, they say to stop it, you should actually focus on trying to make it shake more. And what it, what it does is your brain's actually trying to do that because you can't make your leg, you know, involuntary shake. But because it's switching your brain off that currently happening just now to try and do something that it can't, it sort of calms you down in it, uh, think, things. But mm-hmm. no, it is. There, there was, that was a good message in it. And like you say, I, I, liked, I like films where the kids are swearing and do it. It's more real, um, especially... Mm-hmm. You know, kids growing up in the 80s and stuff. And there was lots of little uh, touches, like the cinemas in the background had uh, now showing Nightmare on Elm Street 5 and things like that. Like, I caught that in the background. And yeah, I liked it. And I'll, there's It's a part two as well, obviously, coming out. Um, and if you've mm. seen the original or know anything about it, it's like, this is all them as kids. And they're way to go their separate ways. And then part two is like, it rears its head. Um, when they're adults, and then they have to sort of get together again and try and try and defeat it. Sort of That's why that book was seven hundred pages. Okay, <laughs> I always I always told myself I'm going to read this book. Then I'd look at it at the used bookstore, and I'd go, Oh my god, uh, yeah, okay. Well, uh, apparently no. the book has got real crazy stuff in it. That um. Some scenes, you know, they weren't. The people were debating whether this scene was going to be in the new remake that was in the mm. book, and it wasn't because even now it was like, you know, it was. I'm not even going too, to go into it, here, but yeah, it was too much um, for anyone that's read the book, and for people that haven't that are going to go and read the book, I don't want to say it as well because I was told it by my friend, and then I read a little bit about it online, which was crazy, but. Yeah, go and see it. It was a good uh, good movie, and I would definitely check it out. Um, I'm currently enjoying Narcos Season 2 but, uh, for my box set as well. Just now. <laughs> I'm getting through that. I love TV. I, can't, I feel bad sometimes when I'm like, you know, but then it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, I'm not really going to be doing anything else for my other business or that just now. I don't feel bad now about watching as much box sets and movies as I can. Like, I, if I get enjoyment from it, so what? You know, it's like, 
I, yeah, I could be out doing something else or I could be reading up something else on my business or doing it. But if I'm just going to do that 24-7, I, I, what kind of existence is that? Even though I really enjoy what I do, it's not, there still has to be some sort of balance and junk mm. food time and whatever. It's, you know, I, I just can't do it. I can't live like that. I'm, it doesn't do anything for me. Sometimes your best ideas can come when you're doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. And yeah. I, I was in Arizona. I was making sure to schedule time to do nothing. And as strange as that sounds, that did help me quite a bit with my business. I've been a little more stressed here in New Jersey. And it just hit me the other day. That's because I've been working up till I go to sleep and then waking up and working again. And mm -hmm. many people want to become that hard worker and reap the success that comes with it. But there's consequences with that. And I think there's nothing wrong with watching a couple shows. I think the problem is when you... It, I was very disdainful toward it at the beginning of this podcast because so many of my students would tell me, Alex, you keep telling me to work harder and that's not true. It, it's, it's too hard. I'm very unlucky. And then I would have them do this thing where I'd have them write down what they were doing each day. And we would find things like they slept nine hours and 40 minutes and spent four hours at night watching TV. Mm -hmm. And then they would tell me, I don't have time to study. Uh, and I knew for a fact that they were hiding how often they were on Facebook. That's when it's a problem. But yeah, one show at the end of the day, I think that's fine. I watch my shows right now are Archer and One Punch Man. Those are, those are pretty fun. I'm watching a lot of anime. Anime's fun. And... Yeah. Uh, what what was the other show? I was I was trying to get into the man in the high castle, but th those shows are so serious, Barry. Don't you ever get worn out watching stuff like Narcos? Mm, no, nah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like Homeland. Uh, I really enjoyed Billions. I finished season three of that this year. Um, I really like Homeland. As I say, I'm, I think that's doing another season as well. Um, I, I loved Homeland. Yeah, Narcos, I'm on season two, and it's good. I mean, the subtitles bit actually makes you pay attention more and focus more. So it's, you know, I, I, I like that. I, season three's just started at <laughs> that. Stranger Things is a way to start season... Oh, it's, it's a full-time job, these box sets. You know, that's... <laughs> When you're yeah. into so many of them. I still never watched Game of Thrones. Um, I've never watched that, but I will it's, eventually. It's good. It's fun. I've read all the books and I've seen all the shows. It's it's good fun. Yeah. It, 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 do you ever watch anything really pointless, Barry? Like, yeah. um, that's why I'm into football and baseball. Is it, At the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything. It, it, it that helps me think the most. When I watch Narcos, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> or, <laughs> not not Narcos, but it's. It, I love those shows too. But sometimes I think, you know, my my day to day life is pretty stressful as is, and yeah. there's a lot of deplorable people. 
in this industry. Perhaps at night I can just pretend that this quarterback is taking his 25.4 mil and donating it to orphanages while he throws a perfect spiral. I don't know. I think when I watch Narcos and stuff, it makes me realize, like, yeah, I'm not that bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I am passable. Yeah, I'm not Pablo Escobar, you know. <laughs> That's uh, that, that should be the review that goes on your tombstone. Well, he wasn't Pablo Escobar. <laughs> well, oh, actually, um, I last night I took a real notion. I subscribed to Poker Go for a year. So I'm, really? official, I'm officially a fanboy again. Good for you. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I was sitting and I just thought, I found this promo code and it was like $20 off. The year was like, you got the year for $80, or like £60, £5 a month. And the pokerography thing, they've done one of Eric Seidel's life and I wanted to see that and I've heard there's a few other ones on it. And then some other bits, and I said, you know what, I've been playing again, actually, as well, playing quite a bit of poker recently, sure. and um, I said, you know what, I'm going to get it, have that on in the background, and, you know, when I'm watching something, or, or even when I'm working away on other stuff, just stick that on, and mm-hmm. see what's what, you know, so yeah, uh, I jumped into that, and I'll have it for the World Series next year, because I, I watched the World Series this year for the first time in however many years, so... um. My subscription will take me up to September next year, so yeah, whatever. It's cheap enough, that's, and yeah. yeah, that's nice. It it's good to be a fan of poker. I wish I still was. I have a. I guess it would be the difference between if you're a baseball player, maybe you don't go watch baseball when you get home. Yeah, but it it, it is fun to play. It is fun to watch poker. Somebody, somebody's banging on the. One of my roommates is banging something, but I I don't. Har har. Uh, one of one of my roommates is knocking into the wall. Yeah. I, I I had to sit there for a second and ask myself, am I doing something really loud? But, yeah, I could hear it. I could hear it. Yeah, yeah. This is this is strange. It's hey, it coming to get you. Yeah, he's coming to get me. He's uh, <laughs> he's dressed up as uh, Facebook because your account right, scares right. your account's getting hacked. <laughs> uh, lucky for him, I'm dead inside, so there will be no fear. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get into the questions then for this week. Um, we have some emails that Al- they've people aren't obviously listening. No, I'm joking. It's obviously people that's emailed Alex directly, <laughs> um, rather than the email for the show. But these ones are in, and here we go. Hey, Barry, can we answer this hand? Yes, of course we are. Now, let me just check that the person's name is okay to get... Yeah, it is. Okay, this one is from Linda. Mm -hmm. Alex, played 2-5 tonight and bought him for $200. Won a couple of small hands and then caught pocket kings. Two players ahead of me went all in pre-flop. I knew the one had aces. But I felt that the flop would determine the wi- the winner, so I went all in as the pot was around six hundred and fifty dollars or so. The other guy had queens, and the flop came with the queen. Now should I have folded and not even bothered going all in? I haven't gotten into the videos yet, and not sure if this situation is covered. Also, I always buy in short stacks. Thanks, Linda. Hey, Linda, uh, thank you for your question. Just to clarify for everybody listening at home, I think she means they have ASAX when they move all in. 
I think with short stacks and pocket kings, even if uh, there's going to be quite a bit of variance, that's a little bit what you bought into with the short stack, which is you're going to take your edge, you're going to get your chips in the middle, and then you're going to hope for the best. I don't think it would be advisable to fold here. Uh, I think if you never folded pocket uh, kings pre-flop, I don't think you would be making a large error pretty much ever. There's obviously very rare situations where it gets raised, re-raised, all in, all in, all in at a major final table where you know people aren't fooling around. Then maybe, just maybe, you look at pocket kings, you can fold. But other than that situation, I'd really recommend if you can get your money in pre-flop with kings, you're never making a really big mistake. Uh, thank you for picking up the massive flop videos. I really appreciate that, and good luck to you. Okay. And this question is from... Let me just check again. The guy's okay. Yeah, this is from Dean. Hi, Alex. I really appreciate the content you are putting out there for us, and I hope your effort is being rewarded. If you can spare the time to answer the question, that would be great. Otherwise, no problem, as I know you're busy. In cash games, I'm happy to 3-bet steals with hands like suited connectors and ace wheel cards, but in tournaments, I don't. My reasoning is that in the early stages, I feel my opponent will often call because they have so many blinds, and in the later stages, 20 to 30 big blinds, I'm afraid to 3-bet as it costs a lot of my chips if I then fold to their 4-bet shove. I do tend to use 20 blinds as my cutoff point to 3-bet shove versus the steal, but with more than 20 blinds, I find it hard to 3-bet. Regards and run good, Dean. Hey, Dean. Thank you for supporting Poker Head Rush, One Outer Podcast, Barry Chalmers and I. That really does that. That really is very kind of you. For those of you who don't know, I don't mind answering questions. I with this store of poker knowledge, that's really nice. But I don't have a job without you guys. So if you guys have questions, just go ahead and send them into the show. It's, it, I really appreciate how kind uh, Dean was here and said, "I know you're busy, but it, it's totally cool." And if you send me a question at alex at pokerheadrush.com, it might take me a few days because there's there's usually quite a few emails that come in, but I will do my best to get back to you. And if I can't get back to you there, we'll answer the question here. And we can keep you anonymous if you'd like. In regards to uh, three-betting, I, I think this is... Let me Let me get a little bit of coffee real quick, Barry, because this is a concept I've actually been writing quite a bit about. Okay. And I'm very, very happy to talk about it. Mm. Barry, what kind of coffee are you drinking today? Uh, no, I've got my cherry Coke just now. Uh, I did have a coffee yesterday. Um, oh, yeah? Did yeah, they... I, got, I got it for free. I went and got my fiancé a coffee, and she has some, like, soya milk latte, whatever, mocha, fucking this and that. And uh, actually, I know exactly what it is. It's a gingerbread soya latte she has. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, so I went and got that, and I ordered it, and I was waiting, and the girl comes over and she's like, two gingerbread soya lattes." I said, "No, just one." She was like, "Oh, that's why you never asked for a holder, isn't it?" I says, "Yeah, just just one." 
oh, do you have a friend who'll drink this one then? I was like, well, I'll drink it. And she went, okay, thanks. And I was like, right. So I got a free coffee yesterday. That I was running good. You know, Run so. better, kid. <laughs> I, uh, well, I, <laughs> I had a, I was going to say a rather main joke, but I'm going to let it go. Sorry, I know that's terrible podcasting. It's one of those jokes I'd give Barry if we were talking privately, but it just occurred to me that's not too appropriate. Okay. Uh, okay, for the three. I'm glad you're drinking coffee in any way, buddy. Uh, so let's I, see. I ended up throwing like half it out the window from the car. I, I, was, yeah. I, I, I don't know how you would drink any of that coffee. It sounds terrible. I was going to joke, like, hey, did you grow hair underneath your armpits, too, after you were done? But then I heard that drink order, and I said, nope, that wouldn't cause it. <laughs> but, hey, yeah. Cherry, I miss Cherry Coke. I just, I can't eat, I can't drink. The last time I tried to drink a Coca-Cola, I got really sick. I just can't drink that much sugar anymore. Yeah. But I really did love Cherry Coke. Okay, well, this has been super on topic. Thank you for your question, Dean. No, okay. So three betting, I am convinced. I, uh, I'm at a loss for how to phrase this. Three betting is the game right now. I'll tell you why. Let's. Uh, I'm. I'm going to give you some hypotheticals. Guy raises under the gun. Uh, the board comes ace queen five. He checks. The caller in middle position checks. The turn is a two, the under-the-gun player checks, the, the middle position player checks, the river comes a king, he checks, uh, the guy behind checks, he turns over 5-3 at clubs, the other guy turns over king-jack offsuit, which he declined a value bet on the river. Does anybody say anything about this hand, Barry? Say it again because I've got you on mute pulling another question because you've battered through the first question. So, okay. okay. No, <laughs> if you're going to put me on the spot, give me a heads up because I'm pulling another question from the notepad because I've, oh, sure, sure. I've only got these two ones you emailed me. If a guy raises under the gun with 5 3 of clubs, like, does anybody say anything now? Uh, no, I don't think so. And I, I realize I'm kind of leading you to that answer with my tone of voice, but I don't think many people do. Now, let's say Barry Chalmers sitting to – don't worry, Barry. I won't call on you again. You can fish for another question. Uh, <laughs> let's say Barry Chalmers notices said guy raised with 5-3 suited, and it comes around to uh, this same guy, and he raises under the gun plus two. And Barry is middle position one, so a couple couple spots to his left. Uh, Barry has, let's say, jack seven of clubs. He three bets. It, the hand gets tabled post-flop. What are people's comments going to be about the jack seven suited, Barry? Well, Barry, sorry, I didn't mean to call on you, but... <laughs> uh, what uh, are people going to comment on that? I just want to make sure I'm right, though. But people do. If you were to three bet an early position raiser with Jack Seven suited, you would get a lot of crap for it. Yeah. Typically, in most card rooms. Yeah. What you raise them with that stuff? You know, re raise them with that and etc. To give you guys an idea of how I look at poker, I got 
I was very taken with books like The Big Short and Moneyball and Chasing Perfection about these guys that short markets find discrepancies. I'm not sure what made me so enjoy that, but I really liked it. And then it occurred to me, I can do that in poker. And one of the ways you can do that is just look for things that don't make a whole lot of sense if you think about them for a second. And then you'll find the commonly accepted wisdom might not be so right. The guys that predicted the housing bubble, they kind of looked around and they said there's no reason a school teacher making 34K a year should have two houses and a boat. That doesn't make sense. Something's going on here. And then they started asking questions and they met some of the guys that were pushing on these loans and they looked at the numbers and they said, this market's going to crash. And you can do that with poker. So one thing that's going to, one market that's going to crash in poker is the frequent open. Uh, the frequent open is in vogue right now. Uh, we just did a hypothetical where a guy raised from five threes, raised five three suited from under the gun, and we did not. No, nobody really batted an eye. When I started playing poker, I can remember clearly raising with ace queen offsuit under the gun and getting a oh you don't want to go broke with a queen in your hand. And when I had ace jack offsuit, I was the wild man raising early with that. And then when I brought in nine seven of diamonds, whew, this this was this kid's from another planet. This kid doesn't understand good poker. That is so out the window right now. So what you have is this spruced up market, which is raising really high, and I'm I mean raising a large percentage bands, and I'm looking to short it, and I like to short it with three betting. Three betting effectively puts the effectively uh, puts the the ball back in my court. It puts the guy in a spot where he can't do a whole lot if he's not willing to four bet. Why, if you take a look at anybody's di distribution of big blinds won, big blinds lost across all the positions. The big blind is where they're always losing 30 big blinds per 100, 40 big blinds per 100. Why is that? Well, it's a forced bet out of position. If somebody is electing to raise a large variety of hands and you put them into an out-of-position decisions, you've effectively synthesized that. And remember, if it creates losses in the big blind, it's really possible it could create losses uh, in the field. So I like to synthesize, well, synthesize, I don't know if it's the right word. I, I like to reproduce that. I like to put the person out of position with a wide variety of hands. And the fact that they overestimate the strength of my hands, uh, if I have king-jack offsuit, many times I'm three-betting that for value almost before I know anything about the players because it is so kosher now to raise with any suited gapper you feel like from any position that I assume king-jack offsuit to be a superior hand most of the time. Mm. Now, uh, does the general public three-bet king-jack offsuit? No, about 80% of the general public considers king-jack offsuit to be complete trash to any raise, and uh, sometimes 90%, depending on that. So this is, uh, this is something people are not anticipating, and I find it to work really well. 
many people don't like to do it at the beginning of uh, tournaments, like Dean said, and they th he was pretty honest about why that is, and that's because, yeah, they do call you. Uh, when they call you, you're going to have to play a little post-flop. The good news is playing as the three-better in position post-flop is not as hard as it would look. To give you an idea of what's going to happen post-flop, deep-stacked, many players are not going to check-raise you with a draw. If you can imagine being 100 big blinds deep uh, at the beginning of a tournament at your local live casino, you probably, if you flop a small flush draw or even the nut flush draw, you're probably not check-raising. So, because it's just too many chips. You don't want to check raise, get flatted, and then go, whoa, on the turn. Uh, you don't want to check raise, have the guy jam for another 60x and go, whoa, and then have to fold. So, more often than not, we check with the plan to check raise. The guy bets, and then we go, oh, oops, and then we call. It, this means that generally, if somebody raises, they have better than one pair, and if they call, they have one pair or less. So you can take a shot on that flop, and generally the bet's going to be profitable. You bet 50% of the pot, it needs to work 33% of the time. Almost every range, even, even the tightest ranges, are going to miss 45-50% of the time. If the guy calls you, you can ask yourself, well, if, it's a, if, you, if you think the guy's calling you with ace high, you can bet again on the turn. Uh, you actually kind of have to, otherwise you shouldn't be making a flop bet. If you think the guy would have check-raised with anything better than one pair, you can ask yourself, well, one pair, how does one pair do on this board, uh, this next card? So let's say the board comes jack-7-2, two, two diamonds, really likely board that somebody would uh, check-raise with a set or uh, something a lot... Well, pretty much a set is about it. So when they check-called... Many times, uh, if they just flatted a three-bet preflop, they don't have queens, kings, or aces. Maybe queens, they do. But their range caps out at one pair. So if the turn is the king of diamonds, uh, he doesn't have the flush draw 80% of the time. He doesn't, he doesn't have the king most of the time. He has second pair now or third pair. And this is probably someone you could keep applying pressure to. Uh, so... It's not as hard to play post-flop as I think people make it out to be. I think the most difficult part is going for the third bet. But that is really, if you want to not bubble tournaments, I think it's a really good idea to make sure you're trying to get those value bets at the beginning. Now, this is going to make you very streaky. Uh, this year, I have two final tables live with a WPT final table. I have a number of final tables on ACR, but I go weeks and sometimes months without any significant cash. That happens. Uh, it's like a snowball at the top at the top of the field uh, at the top of the mountain. If the snowball gets a little bigger at the beginning of the mountain, it's going to be the size of a four by four by the time it gets to the bottom. Whereas if it starts out very small, it might be the size of a snowball at the end it it the more gravitational force you have due to the size of your stack more the more chips are going to come toward you so i do believe it is a good idea for us to press the issue at the beginning of tournaments if we're ahead of somebody's range let's make this a bigger pot when we're in position if we're likely to have the best hand on the river let's not check back and make this easy for this guy let's go ahead and bet there 
Because nine times out of ten, if the guy's going to check raise us, which is most people's central fear here, they have two pair or better. Uh, now, you did express, Dean, uh, some concern about three betting when you have 30, 50 big blinds. I, I, that makes a little bit more sense to me. I'm not big on three betting with just anything with 30 big blinds, but with 40, 50 big blinds, I, I do still three bet C bet a good deal of times because many times people will expect my C bet to be in the realm of half pot and they think, oh, if I call here, he can double barrel. So I'll do a really big bet or I'll do a small bet. The guy will call, cap his range, and then I'll do a bigger bet on the turn that isn't too much of my stack because I structured my bets just so on the flop. And putting people in these goofy situations is akin to in the old days when there would be 30 big blinds, somebody would open, somebody would have a 30 big blind stack. You would open to, they would open to 2.5x, and you would three bet to 7x. They couldn't call, they couldn't re-raise all in super easily, so they would generally fold. In, can you guys hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's trying to start a car that looks like it should have been in the original Stephen King's It. <laughs> and it's literally a car from the 50s. This is pretty interesting. That does wonders for my focus. This is like that last rap battle I did when, when I was trying to do the finishing line in the third round. Somebody came by and played their boombox really loud. Uh, but let's see. You can't put somebody in that situation anymore with the three bet because it's a very commonly accepted play. But what you can do is bet pretty big on the turn and put the guy in a situation where he has to move all in or fold. That play isn't as readily understood, and I think that's a great way to press the issue deep in tournaments. Now, you might be thinking, this sounds very variance-intensive. Yes, it's very variance-intensive. And also, I'd like to remind you, 99 times out of 100, you're not supposed to win a poker tournament. You're, you're supposed to flame out in some fashion. So go embrace the variance. Try to learn. Good luck to you. Don't be afraid of three-betting. Yeah, I really found the, the three-betting thing when I was first started adding that to my game. I remember it. It was almost like... I remember the sort of, not an epiphany, but like I felt it was like firing two barrels when you see bet after three betting. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It was like, because people call, you know, like you three bet anything. It doesn't matter you got aces or eight, nine suited. I, I honestly can't remember the last time I three betted three flop and someone just folded. Yeah, I can't. It doesn't happen that it's, often. You know, it's not just tournaments, but like playing cash games as well. Actually, the six max zoom games and stuff, you do see it. A lot of the regs, because they are fundamentally, you know, good. If if they open and you three bet, they just insta fold. They just fold, you know. Mm. And it, it's like that. But in tournaments, uh, especially live tournaments, early stages, uh, before the aunties, or even when the aunties just kick in, mm -hmm. I I I honestly can't remember the last time I three bet and and the guy just folded. You know. I've, if mm -hmm. someone made it 200 and I made it 6 or something, mm -hmm. like, they just insta-call, whatever, you know, so mm -hmm. wide open. But like you say, they check, you bet, and if they've not hit, they just fold as well. They mm -hmm. just, you know, and so the, the flip side to that is I also can't remember the time I 3-betted 
someone checked, I bet, and they checked, raised me, really. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Congratulations, you've just found a way to short the market. That's it. That's it. Yeah. it, it it's, it's interesting once you start thinking about it from that perspective, right, Barry? Yeah, yeah. And then you can use database management. You can use analytics to confirm these things. I, 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 I don't know how to explain to people how much I do love my job. There are times I don't like my job that often because uh, it's hard work. I, it, it was much easier when I was a poker player. When I was a poker player, I just watched TV all day and I had multiple screens up and yeah, I think, you know, I didn't make as much money as I should have, but I made good money. Now I feel like I'm in a headquarters for a franchise team in the NFL trying to read scouting reports and it's really fun, but it's super intense. But when you find things like that, Barry, like you can't remember the last time somebody check raised you, then, then that just starts a cascading line of dominoes. Uh, what, what happens when you check raise there? How often does the person fold? How often, what percentage of the time does the field check raise there? Uh, sub, can we expect the field to subconsciously understand that and interpret that to be value intensive? Uh, what hands should we check raise with? Uh, let's pull out our flopzilla and figure out what that goes through. But no limit hold'em is subtly very complex, and I, I never really understood that until I got very, very deep with the problems. I understand that chess is supposed to be this very complex game, but I see many people come from the chess world and not really do that well in No Limit Hold'em, and that's really fascinating to me. Obviously, there's exceptions where people do exceptionally well, but many people I thought would just crush it based on their background in StarCraft or chess or any other thinking man's game. It's, it's interesting to see how complex the problems have gotten recently and yeah Barry what you're describing is exactly where you start from which is well here's the other thing when was the last time you three bet something that person called and they just led 1.1x on the pot uh, on the flop could you imagine somebody leading 1.1x pot on the flop like what would you do yeah just obviously you fold if you've not yeah, if you have king, if yeah. the board is king jack five, you have queen jack. Do you call? Uh, yeah, I probably do. <laughs> okay, so you call. You, you call. Okay, what about jack not suited? Uh, I don't know. I've been playing a hell of a lot of six max zoom, so I'm kind of uh, in that mindset. I I I would call with second pair there. I, good, I as know. you should, by the way, because there. But here's the thing: how many people do you think call with second pair? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe let's say 40% call there and 60% fold. If 60% of the people fold second pair there, and especially this is very true in live tournaments where the next bet is going to be all in and their backer is somewhere in the room. And if they hear about this 1.1x call on the flop and then on the turn, the guy folded to a jam, he's going to be in real trouble. The guy's folding 75. The, the guy jams like a king and that's it. Yeah. And that means he's folding 80% of the time. And if you bet 1.1x, the bet needs to work 54% or whatever it is. And this is quite an edge. Our check raising, uh, it, there's a number of lines you can try. What, one that I did for a long time is, let's say the board is coordinated. 
and I had like some really garbage backdoor draw, right? And my line was, I didn't think a dog bet would work, but what I'd do is I'd check raise men on the super coordinated board. And then the guy would call and he'd let me know I have one pair at best, right? And a lot of times, if this was live, they really gruffly throw in the call to be like, how dare you? And it, you just let me know to cap your range more. And then I would overbet the turn. The guy would say something about, oh, I'm an idiot with a set, and then he would fold. And then if I did turn to my crappy backdoor draw, I would structure the bet a little bit more differently because there is some equity. I wouldn't want to put the guy in a jam or fold spot as much. I, I would polarize my range there between sets and just nothing. And probably if I was looking for optimal balance, I probably should put more sense in there. Then because it was just working so well for a while, I just said screw balance and just went for it. But it it did. If you do get caught, by the way, then it turns into a rock paper scissors game where you've been throwing rock. You can throw paper now uh, to change things up. So uh, yeah, let's see. Do we have any more questions? Uh, there is another one now. There, there's actually two, and I'm deciding which one I should ask. Um, let's see. I just need to open it because it's on my phone. Let's go with this one because it's quite funny. Okay. Uh, and the other one is kind of similar to the... The other one's to do with folding a big overpair, so we can do that on, on another show. Okay. Uh, this one is just from Clive, and it simply says, yes, I'm going to ask this question. How do you play ace-king? Thanks. <laughs> uh, okay. Thank you, Clive, for your question. Generally, with ace-king, I find the problem most people run into is they, they, they really develop a strong dislike for when they raise with it and they miss the flop with it. They hold on to it because it looks so good pre-flop. The funny thing is, is if these same people played seven-card stud for five hours and they looked at ace king in the hole and there was a three on the board uh, on as their door card they would understand i don't really have much of a hand here yeah. but at, at the same time when they get ace king and they don't see that first door card uh because it's all going to come in the form of a flop instead of thanking their lucky stars that they get to see fifth straight for only one bet which was not the case when I was playing seven card stud for well I was trying to do it seriously I never was successful at that game but it, instead of thanking our lucky stars that we get to see five of the final seven cards instead we take a valuable hand with two out of the final seven cards we raise it as we should we get to fifth street and we get nothing developing where if this were seven card stud uh, which is the poker variant that Texas Fold'em is derived from, uh, it, it, once we get to fifth straight, uh, essentially, once we get to the flop, we have a pretty good idea of what we should be doing. And if we didn't connect, we shouldn't be doing much. We, we can fire in a bet if we're up against one person. And if we get called, well, we have a pretty cool... If we hit the overguard, we have the top pair. That's pretty nice. But generally, we're not going to be continuing much more but people get this entitlement tilt going on where oh my ace king looks so good i feel like this should be better and that's when the problems start 
So what they start doing is pre-flop, they start calling. I, I'm just going to see if I hit the flop, and then from that point on, I will continue with the hand. This makes them feel like they didn't risk that much, but when they hit, they got a lot more value out of it. The problem with that is what you're doing is you're buying a lot of cheap pots. When the guys have less than one decent pair, you're not going to get that many streets of value off of them. And the streets of value you're going to get are not going to be exceptionally large because this was, you just called preflop. Whereas if you three bet an isolate versus one guy, usually you're going to get a heads up. You, you think about, okay, a guy raises, another guy calls, and you three bet pretty large on the button with ace king. What this accomplishes is the guy who's fooling around with 9-7 suited, maybe he's not going to call, but ace-jack suited will call. So the range that's going to continue with you is going to go broke with you post-flop if the board comes ace high. And then what you're really trying to set up that is that river bet. If you just called 2.5x, then let's say on the flop the board comes with an ace. You try to be cheeky so you don't raise with it. So he bets 3.5, you call. He checks you on the turn, you bet 6.5, he calls. On the river, you go for value, it's 11.5. Uh, he calls. Okay, so you got 11.5x on the river. That's great. Okay, now let's run this uh, where you 3-bet. 2.5x, 7x, he calls. Flop, uh, 8x, call. Turn, 12x, call. Uh, on the turn, you're getting the same money you were getting on the previous one with uh, uh, on the river. And on the river, you're going for 20, 22 big blinds. And then you get a call. So this is an ex, this is a very large pot. This is a much larger pot if you go ahead and three bet there. Furthermore, I find people, even though it's for more chips, people call down much wider because in a multi-way pot they assume somebody hit a big hand somewhere, and that makes it a little bit easier for them to fold one pair by the Turner River. So. Ace, your ace-king, which hit the board, has a ton of value versus their check-folding range, which is about as useful as it sounds. And what we want to do is we three-bend, we keep our range with all these weird uh, suited gappers that missed and these absolute bluffs that we could have. And people just, I find, range things very poorly, heads up. They assume it's much less likely somebody has a hand than they do. Whereas many people will never triple barrel bluff. And I think that's uh, really special about Ace King, about how you're going to get profit. Now, if somebody four bets you after you three bet, if you're up to about 70 big blinds, you're almost like if you just four bet jammed every single time, that would be like if I was teaching somebody, if I didn't have much time to teach someone, as I don't have much time to teach you right now because we're running to the end of the episode. Uh, you would almost never make a big mistake unless it's the tightest guy at the table, especially in tournaments uh, where if, 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 unless you have a reason to suspect the guys being, uh, the guys being a little tight. Now, if you call there and just play, if you hit the board, you also almost never, why don't you guys just do that? If you're su if you're less than 50 X, just go ahead and five bed jam it. Uh, if it's 50x or plus, why don't you just flat and continue with an ace or king board? And almost never will you be making a huge equity mistake. Now, is that a perfect strategy? No, it's not. But 
that's going to get you 90% of the way there, and the last 10% would take 30, 40 minutes of us going over the hands and uh, describing par- particulars and you then having to go out and get uh, years of deliberate practice. So let's just start with that right now. And Why don't you, uh, Clive was his name? Clive, yeah. Clive, why don't you write in and let us know how your experiments go. Good luck to you. Yeah, I, again, with playing the Zoom, I notice that, you know, you open Ace King um, on the in, on the button or cut off, and you're three bet from the big blinds. You know, yeah. say you, you say you make it three, they make it nine, then you make it 30 or whatever, and they jam. It's like, well, it's two to one now, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, essentially, it's, it's a way of keeping them honest. It's, uh, you, you for, you can flat there a decent percentage of the time. Generally, the regs are not going to five bet ace queen there. So, something you could also do is just go to 20x and hopefully induce that, like, oh, he's four bet bluffing. I'll try to go to 32x and get super cute here. And then you can jam. And then if he just flats that 20x out there, then essentially the bet on the flop is going to put the guy all in or fold right there. So, unless he's trying to, unless he understands what you're doing, he just goes, I'm check jamming my entire range on this flop, which I, I don't think most people are doing. Uh, I think that could produce a pretty decent profit. And then, if this guy gets to know that you have a big hand when you do that, uh, that allows you to kind of go like, here, kitty kitty with aces. And if you do decide to four bet bluff, you don't have to, Instead of making a 30x, you could make a 24x or something along those lines. Yeah, it's one of these hands. It's funny, you know. I remember at live tournaments seeing final table, and you know, say there's under the gun plus two, like shoves 20 big blinds, and I fold, fold, and it comes to a guy later position, and I saw him fold. And then sort of like do that, wanting to keep his cards, you know, to show he's fold sort of thing. And the yeah. dealer's like, they need to go in the muck, you know. They need to go. He's like, oh, just keep them at the side there. Keep them yeah, I up. hate it when people yeah. do that. That's like, <laughs> I had his queen. Yeah, I had his queen. Just, just in case anybody was considering calling me with a yeah, weak hand behind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, and then it fold folds. And then I saw people do that with Ace King, right? You, it's usually the older guys over 50. And they give the speech of, it's ace high. It's only ace high and stuff. And it's I a draw remember, hand. Yeah, yeah, it's a draw hand. And I remember saying, you know, and then you've been at final tables where you've had the ace king a few times and you've got hit against a pair. And it's amazing how people get that confirmed in their head. And then they forget about the times when, well, the guy's shoving king queen, you know, or mm. he's shoved king jack suited and whatever. And it just comes down to that again, isn't it? It's the ranges and what you're against. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's it's crazy when people say that. I, I think in cash games it is different. Like you say, people can lose these big pots. They're three bet, and then they try and play cute. They flat with ace king, and it comes king nine five, and the guy's got a set of nines or fives or whatever. You know, right, right. And it's, they stick a hundred big blinds in with it or more. The pain of losing is much more vivid and memorable than the biggest pots you've ever... I cannot remember the biggest pots I've won. I can tell you in vivid detail, as the <laughs> scene uh, in Rounders discusses, my... Well, I can tell you my one outer for 100K. I will never forget that till the day I die. That was a very real-life moment. One outer on the river. 
if you ever wondered how we got this uh, podcast name, but no, that's not why we did it. But yeah, you can always, I remember the flip I lost in San Ramo uh, for many, many chips. I think it was second in chips with six people left with what at the time was the uh, biggest tournament in European history at the time. Or set, No, there were seven people left. And you, you remember that stuff in vivid detail. Do I remember getting it in with uh, tens to jacks, 56 people left in that tournament and hitting the 10 like it was my job? No, I choose not to dwell on that. I would much rather complain about my sweat at the final table. It's because we expect to win. You know, it's it's like me, again, going back to the Zoom, you know, kings against aces pre-flop. Oh, shit. Oh, I've hit a king. Oh, that was fine. I've now won 200. You know, rather than sitting going... And and then you just don't think, and then you go, well, that's because... Oh, that was... I had to put it in there, you know, whatever, and... I've hit. It's happened to me before on the other side. It's so true. People people forget when they're lucky. And what I've done the last few years is I just remind myself when I, that I've been lucky and when I get beats or whatever, it's just like, it's totally, I'm over all that. You know, I really I, am. You know, it's just... I, I, every day, I, if you guys could see how small my apartment is in Kearney, I think you guys would laugh. It is quite literally, it's a huge desk. So I got three screens on that. I go about five feet, and then I have my, I have a nightstand, and I have my bed, and I have a dresser, and I keep my gr- groceries under the bed. There's a communal kitchen, and my dogs sleep underneath the desk. And uh, every day I wake up and I do gratitudes, which is I'm really thankful to have a roof over my head. I'm really grateful for working electricity and very good internet. I'm very grateful to have food that I can prepare in a communal kitchen. And it changes your brain chemistry. I really think it does because now I really like this place and I love how cheap it is and how that gives me money for, uh, I met with a personal trainer the other day. That's something I could have never afforded with the places I was renting before. And it's nice if you put things into a different perspective. If you, Start saying, I'm grateful for the fact I'm playing poker. Many people, if you were born in Iran, you, d- you don't get to play poker. That's that. And if you were born in Cuba, you do not get to play poker. And if you were born in many Asian countries, the time zone is just horrendous for tournament poker. So it's going to be very difficult. Or if you're one of the one billion people in India, you're going to have to start your Sunday session at midnight. Think of what a disadvantage that is. And if you start thinking of all these things and then you have a bad beat, it's much easier to let it go. Yeah, yeah. I always remember that with you, Alex, when I got a lesson. It was like deep in tournaments and you get the beats. Just remember that there's, you know, you could be in a third world country with no electricity and you're, you're moaning because you're in a, a cozy flat playing on a laptop for <laughs> thousands. And you're still cashed for, right, you know, a right. few hundred or whatever. <laughs> You still cash for like a you know six months salary for some people in some parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know? it's, it's crazy. Um, okay, on that positive, grateful note, Alex, uh, let's wrap it up for this episode. Keep your questions coming in for Alex. Questions at oneouter.com. Please email them in and we will get them read out on a future show. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for coaching, webinars, etc.? You guys can go ahead and write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com if you want to discuss private lessons. Follow me on Twitter at The Assassinato. 
and read my blog at pokerheadrush.com. And when you're there, sign up for my newsletter to the top right if you want to get free strategy articles, podcasts, interviews, uh, hand quizzes, and offers uh, from my newsletter. Okay. Alex, thanks for taking the time and uh, joining us with your noisy neighbour and all. <laughs> and uh, you guys just been banging his head against the wall. He's <laughs> <laughs> probably one of our listeners. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, on that note, keep your questions coming in and we will see you next Thursday. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. The OSS Cubed is back with over $14 million in guaranteed prizes from September 24th to October 22nd, featuring $2 million Sunday tournaments on October 15th and October 22nd. And it's waiting for you at America's Card Room.